Turning points change the course of our lives, whether it's a big decision, overcoming an obstacle or tragedy, or taking a leap of faith. These stories of inspiration and resilience are what Turning Point is all about. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of Turning Point. I'm very pleased to have Selena Cesar Chavan as our guest today. She is an entrepreneur, a former MP for Whitby, a mental health advocate, and now she's added author to her list of accolades. Her book, Can You Hear Me Now? I have my coffee right here. Came out earlier this year. Oh, you have your coffee too. <laughs> thank you so much for being here, Selena. Thank you so much, Priya. Thank you for having me. I thank you to your your listeners and viewers as well. Yeah, you know, I just finished the book last night and I I honestly couldn't put it down. I I I guess before I read it, I had kind of expected most of it would focus on your oh, political it? career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. But I was so, um, I was so pleasantly, um, surprised and, and really drawn in, um, by all of the life lessons you shared from, from really from different periods of your life. Uh, so how did this book come to be? Let's start there. Oh my goodness. That is, it's always a convoluted story for me when I do anything. <laughs> um, but I had originally wrote a lot of these lessons that you find scattered throughout the book. Um, when I was an entrepreneur. So I wrote them as part of my business. So things like never take the first offer, know your worth, um, you know, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. There were things that I had thought, like things that I had, mistakes I had made during my business. And I, kept, I just kept writing them down, writing them. And when I got into politics, I found that piece of paper and had all those, the list, 10 lists, 10 things that I'd learned during business. And so I started to like sort of put little stories around them. And as I was going through politics, I realized, oh my goodness, I use these lessons in politics too. And wow, I've been using them all my life. So I started sort of just putting stories together with some of the lessons. And in March, 2019, when I went with my agent to Penguin Random House, they said, yeah, no, we don't want a book about the lessons. <laughs> and I was just like, what? They said, well, we want a book that gives the whole life story. Like, how did you get from immigrant child to uh, the parliamentary secretary of a G7 country? You could put the lessons in, but we want to know how you did all that in a chronological format. And so there you go. That's the book. <laughs> And you go way back to um, some of your very early days. So did you, was this mostly from memory or, you know, how did you kind of collect some of these stories? Yeah, so they were mainly from memory. I mean, throughout the book, I talk about the times where, you know, as a young person, I would put, like I put a pin in it and remember something that I had to deal with when my adult self would show up. And I remember as a child, always thinking about certain things that would happen and go, oh, if only my, when I get big, I'm going to do this. And when I get bigger. And so I remember, you know, it was interesting as you start writing, you remember like certain stories. Like I remember my nemesis, Alex, and that was a traumatic experience when I, when I didn't get first place on the times tables, but you know, other things that came up that like kind of shape your, your childhood. And as you start writing, you're like, Oh my goodness, remember that? And then my mom was like, Oh, remember the story of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so we'd have all these like little stories that came up because somebody would remember one version or the other of what happened. 
And you are such a beautiful storyteller. I mean, all of these, I felt like very transported into, into your life and into these different periods of time. And that story that you just talked about, um, about your times table and, you know, this, this boy, Alex, um, kind of besting you in one of these, uh, in class competitions and your determination to, to beat him the next time around. And I, I love that that, that theme started there and you kind of came back to it uh, over the course of your book. Yeah. So there's a few themes and it's interesting because as, so this is my copy, like I write, I wrote it, but it's still earmarked and stuff like, like I know I need to take notes. I, I think I love it. All the notes, but I've been writing sort of at the back of the book here, the themes that people have come up with. And you just gave me one around the competitive spirit. So I'm going to write it in. But there were like themes around the scar. So somebody was saying that they never noticed the scar and how like scars invisible or visible sort of kind of appear throughout the book. The gray sense of unbelonging, either when I first came to Canada or university or parliament. And then the haunt, of course, um, was one of the themes. And, you know, I I write these down because I like to see how people gauge the book. And there's been such um, emotional response to the book with people seeing themselves in it. And it's interesting for me to see where they saw the themes that I didn't realize I put in the book. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, um, as a woman of color, felt I saw myself in so many of your stories. Um, And I did wonder, you know, I know um, at the end you kind of explained that you really hope especially that that black women and that other women of color will um, will see themselves in your story. And I, I know you talk about at some points also this this feeling of of just not feeling alone in your experiences. And I feel like your book really, really brought that out. Um, is as I wanted to ask, are, is that what you're hearing from people like what are people telling you after reading your book? Yeah, so the intention of the book was to record my history um, because we, we tend to find that a lot of Black racialized in, Indigenous history has been erased from the textbooks that we learn from in schools. But also I wanted people to not feel alone. So one person, when, when they um, wrote back to me, I believe it was on Twitter, she said that she's highlighted pieces, she's written in the margins, she's marked off pages. And she says that people should hold this book like a like with them throughout their lives and then just go back to a page and, you know, OK, I made this mistake. What did Selena do? Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, she did that. OK, yeah. No, I'm OK. You know, I just don't want people to feel alone. And so, you know, when people talk to me about, you know, writing about the vulnerable parts in my story, the mistakes, the guilt, the shame, why would you do that? It's because I felt alone in those moments. and. I know how devastating that could have been in my life if I didn't if I didn't have people that would guide me along. So for those who don't have people to guide them along, and even if they do, this book is kind of that that premise that says, first of all, it's okay to make mistakes and you could rise after a mistake, but also everything's going to be okay. <laughs> Nobody teaches us how to deal with mistakes. That is very true. <laughs> 
But that is very true. And I think that is kind of uh, a part of the the immigrant experience for a lot of uh, a lot of us first generation um, Canadians, you know, we're not taught how to deal with mistakes, we're taught not to make them, um, because that's the way to succeed. And then to hide the shame of them, right? To hide the shame. And then, so we don't even know sometimes what to hide and what not to hide. So, you know, I, I talk about my miscarriages in the book. Like, do we hide that? Do we not hide that? Like, you know, the lies that I told, do we hide that? Do we not hide that? Like, you know, we're just like, well, we'll just hide everything. But that consumes you so, it consumes your energy, your reserves, your resources, your ability to to be fully joyful, not just happy, but to have joy. And so it was a cathartic experience to write the book and to release all of that stuff. I'm glad you mentioned this because I I did want to ask, you know, you do tell, as you just mentioned, some very personal stories in the book. Um, You talk about your experiences with sexual assault, uh, mental illness, some very difficult times in your marriage. Um, So Uh, And you just said, you know, you kind of decided to share this to help other people um, not feel alone like you did during some of those times. Um, Was it hard to do that? I mean, to to really put yourself out there and and really bear some of these things. So in such a vulnerable way. Uh, Absolutely. Um, But I have a great editor. Her name is Anne Collins at Random House Canada. She's now the executive editor at Penguin Random House. And she said to me at one point, because I, I wrote, you know, you write various versions of the book. Like I've written this book maybe five or six times, right? And then I've read it at least 10 times. Um, and even when I got the book, I read it again because there's still some mistakes. And <laughs> like, how did we not see these mistakes? But, you know, I wrote it a couple of times and then it goes to her for edit and review. And then she comes back and she's like, there's a gap here and here and here and here. And I'm like, yes, there is gaps there. Intentional. And she says, but Selena, your whole stick is that you're like, you tell truth. And, and then she said to me, do you want this book to hurt or to heal? And I was just like, Oh my God, (laughs) I wanted to heal people. (laughs) But I really wanted, so you needed to have that truth in there so that you could connect with people. They could, that empathy could be created that says, look, I'm not just saying I'm here for you because I'm being sympathetic. I'm being, I'm saying I'm here for you because I empathize with what you're going through. Here's my truth. I know that some version of my truth relates to what you're going through. So I'm here for you. And also in that sharing, in that releasing of that burden not only i heal but i think a lot of people are gonna heal because it's like oh man i wasn't the only one did you read selena's book how much stuff she did like how much trouble she was in (laughs) my life is just fine (laughs) oh well i I commend you for being, you know, for being so open because I, and I think like what your editor said there, uh, about, about healing, um, Wow. I mean, that that's really powerful. And just hearing that, I can totally see um, how that was sort of at the forefront of, of a lot of the stories you shared um, in helping other people heal. Yeah, no, it was, um, 
that was the that was the aha moment when I was writing because a lot of the stories, especially around politics, were painful. And I wrote them in the moment. So after the the contract was signed, I, I would write as I felt like writing. So I never really understood the writer's block thing because every time that, you know, a week would go by, I'd be like, oh, I haven't written in a week. And I said, well, but when I do, it's going to be great. So no worries. And I wouldn't worry about it. And then when I did start writing, I would just like go, 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 go and write a whole bunch of stuff. But when this stuff was happening in politics, because I wanted to make sure that my psychiatrist and my therapist were helping me through the process, I was just typing. I was typing so for like itty bitty details so that I didn't forget what was happening. And so she saw that version of what I originally wrote. And she was like, whoa, I can't publish this. You are angry. And I and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm mad. And I want you to publish that. And she's like, do you want it to hurt or to heal? And I was just like, oh. I wanted, I, I really wanted it to be a book that healed, that, that showed people that even when you're in that height of emotion, in that space, in that messy, pull the message out, in that pain, pull the passion out, in that hurt, take the, the purpose out of that hurt and let it drive you. Let it be the, the values and principles that you stand upon because it's it's that empathy that is that's holding you that's driving your passion that's now driving your purpose and I think that message certainly comes through in the book. Um, speaking of healing, you know, one of the other pieces of of this, especially in your talking about your your childhood, um, you speak about the challenges you had um, with your parents and just them them being very strict, um, using physical punishment. I think it's something um, a, a lot of us can relate to, um, especially when and having parents who grew up in different cultural backgrounds, where you know some of that is the norm. Um, how did they feel about about you sharing some of this and and what is your relationship with them like uh, at this point yeah so that was a challenging part because i needed to i needed to unload i needed to get rid of a lot of that hurt that i was feeling and you know i said i dedicated the book to my mom you know to my mother odessa the iron that sharpened me and there's one line that i use in the book where i say i feared her but she feared for me and therefore treated me the way the world, she thought the world would. And the person that you see here is a creation of that iron, right? So I cannot, I cannot just say, oh, I, you know, there was a physical punishment and, you know, um, you know, I had these tensions with my mom. Yeah. Which kid doesn't, but, but the creation of that, what she created with that iron, it's magnificent. So, so there was some tension, of course, with writing it because it's like, oh, there's shame. And it's like, but a lot of families go through this. And if we're going to change the narrative about how we parent, like how I parent now, if we want to change that, that narrative, then we, we need to talk about it. And if we're not talking about it, so when, like in Facebook groups, when, when parents are talking about corporal punishment and I say, I never have hit my kids. Like, like never, it's like never. And I make sure I say never, I never have. You try taking a cell phone away from a 12 or 13 year old. They're at that point where they're like, just please hit me. Give me back my phone. <laughs> 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 just, just 
like, oh, you know, or unplug the internet. Oh my God. Like you would think that you've just committed the, like the worst thing ever, right? There's other ways to discipline. There's other ways to parent that doesn't involve hurt, which I just, I just didn't think was a, that it was one of the things that I held in my head. And I said, I am never going to do this like ever. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, kind of what sticks with you. And again, kind of you grew up obviously in a completely different environment than they did. I've I've had some of these conversations with my own parents and um that uh that comment you just made about your mom and and how, you know, she feared for you. This is something that really um I didn't understand until I was an adult either why some of that pressure was there to to always be the best to when I brought home a 98 what happened to the other two percent you know two percent oh my gosh just give me a break mom <laughs> right yeah but that that piece of the puzzle I didn't have until recently either that idea of I was worried for you. I worried about what your future would look like and and that knowing that as a person of color you you do have to be twice as good. You there's no there's no room for error. Um, and and you know hopefully that's something. I, I think we're starting to see some changes there. But um, but again, just a very relatable part of 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 the story you shared. Yeah, I, I hope so, and I hope we could start to have those conversations because they did the best they could with what they had, right? And so now we have something. So now we need to be do the best that we could with what we have. And so, you know, I got the question once, you know, how are your children? Like, you know, are they as, you know, badly behaved as you were? And I was like, are you crazy? I could see whatever they're doing like a whole mile away because I've done it all. <laughs> so my children are so well behaved. They've traveled the world. They started traveling by themselves at 13 years old. Like they're just just remarkable young people. So I'm, I'm truly, I'm truly blessed. Oh, that that's amazing to hear. I mean, you're truly blessed and they're, they're blessed to have you too, because um, just hearing, you know, all of your life lessons and, and the way you have, from your book have talked about really speaking with them very openly and honestly about, about every topic that comes up. Um, what do they say about that, about that now? So it's interesting. So my daughter, of course, my my 16-year-old actually designed the cover. So this is her work. She got the contract with Penguin to do the concept. So she's written in the in the front part of the book. And so I've always been open with them about my mistakes and stuff. But when Desiree, my 21-year-old, she was reading it when the book came out. She read it cover to cover. And we always have dinner together as a family. And we're calling her up for dinner. I'm like, Desiree, come up. She's like, I'm reading the book. I'm like, Desiree, come on. Like, you know how it ends, right? Like, like, come on up for dinner. And she comes up and she's like, oh my God, I hope Selena and Vidal make it. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> she said it was, it was like reading the backstory to her life. It was so it was so amazing. And we just started laughing. I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Selena and Fidel make it. Don't worry. <laughs> 
Oh, that is very, that is very cool though. Cause I'm sure she's heard like these stories, um, you know, at different points in time, but to, yeah. to read it all like that, that is very yeah. cool. It is like, it's, it is, it's a family history in a way. Yeah. It's the backstory of her life. So we have these amazing conversations, but we also have the conversation of pass the salt. So why did you stay with daddy? Much? It's like, Oh God, <laughs> pass the salt. Oh, I'm can't chew with food in my mouth. <laughs> Oh, like it, it's awkward this... conversations they're like so cringe but you you just talk about them because relationships have ups and downs yeah and I appreciated the honesty of of that side of it too and and that idea of you know you two stepping up for each other uh, at different points in time um, and one of the moments between the two of you that really stood out to me um, was part of your mental health journey when um, when Vidal really uh, encourages you to to get help as um, as I believe this is um, after the by-election and before the the general election, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about about that time and and your mental health journey. Yeah. So it's interesting because I worked, of course, in brain research for 10 years. I, I started off in brain research. So I had administered a number of depression scales. So I knew very early that I would have failed a depression scale. Like I knew I was depressed a lot earlier than getting, than when I got diagnosed, but I'm running a company. I'm, I'm successful. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And, you know, I, I have only a certain amount of things that I could put in my cup. And I'd say to Vidal, you know, I could only hold so much. I could, I could hold my work because I have to work and I could hold the kids. I, I can't deal with you and I can't deal with me. Right. So, but I could only hold those things. So I kept going and going and going. And finally it came to a head where, you know, I, I've just, ha I'm feeling like the worst I've ever felt. And he, he's always been my security, like my weighted blanket. So he's always been that person that just is able to say, okay, I know exactly what to do to get you better. And it's interesting, the conversations I have on social media, like in, in DMs with people who are like, I just don't understand why my partner won't take their medicine. And I won't understand why they won't do this. And they were sort of, I'm like, well, I'm the person that didn't take the medicine. I'm the person that yelled at that out. I'm the person. And I said, like, this is how, this is what happens when your brain is ill. The, the challenge of having someone or the, the beauty of having someone who will stand with you is once I started like writing this book and putting out all of my, my hurts and my pains, it was very cathartic, very cathartic experience. I noticed that my, my cup was getting less full because I was getting rid of all the garbage in it. And then I was able to put myself in my cup and my husband back in my cup. And because my cup wasn't actually full, I was just holding on to a lot of stuff. Wow. And once you're able to let go of that stuff through healing, through ensuring that you have the support to get your mental health checked, to get you know, counseling and do those kinds to do meditation and eating right and healing yourself, then you're able to say, oh, my cup isn't full. I was just holding on to a lot of garbage. And that that took a while for me to understand. I really like that that metaphor of of clearing out some of the garbage to in this case, even just like you said, to make room for yourself, for your for your relationship. Um, and I imagine the cup was probably at its fullest when you were in politics, um, oh, as yeah. yeah. So 
you do, you call politics um, the most painful, but also the most beautiful uh, experience. So I, I kind of want to go back to the beginning of your political journey and, and what made you interested in politics in the first place? I wasn't, I was never interested in politics. So in December of 2013, my company was approaching its 10 year mark. And I was deciding whether I wanted to take the company international or leave and, and work in a corporate environment. We had won, you know, a couple of different awards, Toronto Board of Trade, Black Business and Professionals Association. Like we were doing really, really well, running a co-chairing a national epidemiology study on neurological conditions. And I was like, okay, what next with the company? Like, you know, of course, my cup is full. I'm just working on my business and my kids. And I'm like, what next? What next? And I take decide to do this MBA because I, I wanted to like refresh. And in that course, there was a politics component and I was intrigued. And so I became a member of the Liberal Party, first time, never taken a poli-sci course before, was never interested in politics, decided that I'd become a member of the Liberal Party. I'd always voted Liberal in February of 2014. And then on March 8th, like less than a month later, I get this email that says, invite her to run. Do you know a woman who'd be interested in running in a federal election? I was just like, me, I'll do it. <laughs> wow. And the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the rest is history. Wow. So during this, so the so the by-election, um, you you actually did much better than than yeah. really anyone expected. Um, and then you did uh, you did you lost that one, but then shortly after the general election happened, then you became the MP. Yeah. Um and this is a huge turning point, you know, um, obviously for you in your um, in your career. Now you're shifting to politics, um, but it was also um, a very challenging time. So tell me about in your book, you talk about about the microaggressions, uh, about the racism, these kind of very high highs of moments like when you met Obama and then um, very low lows in, in some of the day to day experiences. Um, did you have expectations going into it um, or, or or did this kind of all really come out of nowhere in a way? You know, so in chapter 10 of the book, I actually wanted to tear out all of chapter 10 because it appears as if it came out of nowhere and it actually did came out of nowhere. I was somewhat naive in thinking that a, a liberal government that talked about diversity as our strength and add women change politics would take an intersectional feminist approach to policy. And, I, and that didn't materialize. And so when we talk about turning points, you know, that was the point where I think there was the most pain in my life that really made me think about my own mental health and stop taking it for granted. So I had a nervous breakdown right at the beginning of my political term in January of 2016. That was the start of the, the turn to like the present sort of understanding of how powerful I am as a woman, how to use my voice. And then I think the second one was after sort of a couple years of seeing how those microaggressions were hurting me, I said in September of 2017, I know the date exactly, September of 2017, the gloves come off. I am no longer going to try to fit into this space. I am going to be Selena. I'm going to use my voice. I did the the speech with the braids. Um, I that that was that was a very intentional. Usually, some people would say, oh, you know, what's the turning point in your life? And it's kind of like, oh, maybe it was here, maybe it was there. 
that was an actual date that I knew. And even my husband was saying, I said, the gloves come off in September because that was when the next parliamentary session after the summer break was going to start. And he's like, oh God, babe, no, just like, let's just keep the, glove, the gloves on. Let's not, let's not take them totally. I said, no, that's it. September gloves come off. And I went to work with the braids in my hair. I did that first speech on the Wednesday. And after that, I was sounding the alarm on racial inequality, on gender parity, on fairness, on equity, on things that really mattered, I think, to a lot of marginalized communities. I think this is really another theme that that came up a lot for me in your book was um, that maybe you would experience a personal challenge and, of course, handle it personally, but then also take on the the um, responsibility or the challenge of, of also helping others. So you experienced some of your own mental health challenges and then really fought for, for this $5 billion in, in funding from the government. Um, and in the same way, um, as you said, you know, you came in, um, with your braids, gave this speech about how women shouldn't be judged based on their appearances. Um, and, and it wasn't just about you. It was really about speaking up for for other people. So I'm loving hearing this piece of, of how that 2017 was really this point for you where where you just said, like, I'm, I'm just going to be me and I'm going to do what I think needs to be done here to, to help others. For sure. And, you know, you know, that that advocacy, it, it was so 2017, I said, you know, I'm going to just be me. And then it was really in 2018 where I wrote the love letter, where I realized that, so I knew I had a responsibility to speak up. That was 2017. But the real transition, the real sort of, the the purpose came in 2017, but the real passion came when I recognized that that responsibility was not a burden. It wasn't like a heavy backpack that I had. It was love. Like it was the love that I had for my community. And I wrote that love letter just because I wanted people to know that the painfully beautiful part, that through all the pain that I felt over the last three years here in politics, you know, feeling those microaggressions, feeling excluded from conversations, feeling all these things, I see you so clearly that I have, I have so much enormous love for my community. I, I, it was, it was like a, it was one of those moments where I was just like, oh my God, this isn't a burden of like heavy. This is, this is where they talk you about, you know, about lifting your brother because you love them. Right. And so, yeah, it was, yeah, just, just love the realization of how much I love my community. I loved reading that letter too. And I, you know, encourage anyone who hasn't read the book yet. Um, that was definitely one of my, one of my favorite parts. Um, in talking about some of this timing here, um, I one of the things that surprised me, I mean, I was a journalist uh, at the time um, you were an MP. And so I remember, of course, um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of interviews with you. I remember um, I what I was surprised by is that my, I myself had remembered your uh, deciding to sit as an independent MP as being part of the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal. And when I was reading your book, I realized, oh, no, you had made that decision uh, before that and also the decision that you would not be seeking re-election. Um, so tell me about making that decision. And and was there a, something that was kind of the last straw for you when it came to to politics? Yeah, so... I think for me, it was in 2018, just knowing that 
you know, I was talking about privilege, you know, and racism, Maxine Bernier, that exchange happened. I was, I got like the gaslighting of my life. Like I just, the trolls came after me, the death threat started, the against me and my children there was like i was like everything was going wrong that year i was being sued i was in mediation like everything was just happening and i just remember thinking not one time did pmo or the party infrastructure say are you okay and i was like why wouldn't you do that and you know people say oh well selena you know the, she's the prime minister he doesn't have time and I say, and then, then I think about here for Selena. So when here for Selena went viral that night, he had time to call. So when every when it looked like the world was standing and supporting me, then they were willing to publicly support me. But for the three weeks prior, it wasn't. And I at that point, I just thought, why would you stay at a table when love is no longer being served to you? And it was time to go. That's a pretty powerful statement right there. Why stay at a table when love is not being served to you? Yes. And, and when you have a choice, especially, um, so that was, and so that was the moment. And then, um, and then you waited some time to make your announcement, but that was the moment. I was hoping, yeah, I was hoping that it would change, but I, I think by that time I knew, I just knew it was just, just not, you don't, I didn't belong. I didn't belong there. I love my job, loved it. And I get emotional when I talk about leaving because I loved it so much. But you just can't, and it's, I, and I say in the book, you know, one of the hardest decisions to do is to leave when you know that you deserve to stay. I deserve to stay, but I couldn't. And And that, that goes for like, not just a job, but relationships that we're in, you know, things that we put our time, energy, resources, you know how valuable you are. If you're not getting a positive return on that value with your partner, with a job and otherwise, you got to know to walk away. And it's hard, but you got to know how to do that. Yeah, I think that that is a really powerful lesson in just knowing when to walk away and and also kind of striking that balance between um, between doing what you love and and taking care of your own uh, of your own family, your own mental health. Um, it's it's not always easy to to strike that balance, and and at some points we do have to make difficult decisions. Um, I want to come back to your turning point for a minute because the subtitle of your book is How I Found My Voice and Learned to Live with Passion and Purpose. So tell me more about this and where you are now, um, because I feel like we go on this this journey with you. And, and in the end, it really uh, it really does feel you feel that subtitle kind of come to life. Yes. Um, so yeah, you know, after going through such painful moments and then realizing the gloves come off, I, the, the love letters written, that is where all of the hurts that I've had accumulating in my life, that's where I draw that passion from that pain. And it was easy to make decisions to leave because my principles were tied to that pain. They were tied to that empathy that was created from the pain that I had experienced. And so I, I feel almost like I needed politics. I needed that experience, that like trial through the fire 
to be born the phoenix, right? To come out on the other side as, you know, someone who is not afraid to use her voice is unapologetically Selena. Like those were all the titles of the book, like unapologetically Selena, um, you know, all of these are independent women, all kinds of things. And then, you know, we landed on, can you hear me now? But, you know, it was, it was really a, a, a lesson in going through that painfully, ex painful experience to come up with the beautiful understanding of my life's passion and purpose. Well, I thank you so much for sharing your story. I know so many people are are so grateful for you um, for sharing some of this, especially um, I really that message of, of of helping others to not feel lonely in their own experiences really resonated um, with me. So um, thank you for taking the time to share your story, to share your thoughts. Um, and I look forward to uh, to keeping in touch and, and talking about your next turning point down the road. For sure. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed being on with you. And thank you for using your platform to share stories because stories are sticky. And if we're going to create a world that's more equitable, we need to listen to those stories. And you're you're contributing to creating that equity just by having that platform. So I hope you you really realize how powerful this platform is, not just to community, but to the world. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Selena. I, I really, really appreciate it. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much. All right, my dear, you stay safe. Yes, you too. And to all of you watching and listening, thank you so much for tuning into Turning Point this week. Uh, until next time, take good care of yourselves and of each other. <laughs>